Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hollywood and Levine. Thank you so much for being here. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and it is my birthday this week. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, you can post a like on Facebook if you want. But I thought as a result of that, I would talk about ageism this week on the podcast because ageism certainly in Hollywood does exist. And it exists big time. So I thought I would talk about uh, what that's like uh, when you're a former big successful writer. And first I have to go back to radio because when I got out of college and I was like 22, I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a top 40 disc jockey. I want to play Beatle records for the next 40 years. You know, and when you're that age, you know, you think, oh, this is a fun job. This is great. Uh, It'll always be here. And I could always do this. And a year later, it's 1973. And I'm doing the all night show in San Bernardino at KMEN, KMEN in San Bernardino. And our morning guy who would follow me at 6am was very nice guy. And he was like already in his mid-30s and he was already balding and he kind of looked like the actor Herschel Bernardi for the six of you out there who know who that is. And our radio station, just to give you some idea, it was like this little shack in the middle of a cow pasture and we had all of these towers and on the other side of the cow pasture was a junior high school and we had a window... From our booth, we could look out and see the junior high school way off in the distance. So I would get off the air at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'd be packing up all my stuff, and this morning guy would come on the air. And uh, a lot of kids who were going early to their junior high would stop by the radio station, and they would peek into the window and watch him or whoever was on the air do their show. And I'm sitting there watching this, and it's like, man, here's some 35-year-old guy which seemed really old, and he's up at 6 o'clock in the morning entertaining these 12- and 13-year-old kids with their noses pressed up against the window pane. And I thought to myself, really? Really? Is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? And the answer was no. So now I'm kind of at a crossroads. What am I going to do instead? Well, there were two options. There were two things that held my interest. Number one was to someday be a major league baseball announcer. 
And in order to do that, I would have to go off in the minors and do minor league baseball and hope that in time I was good enough or lucky enough that I could get a job with a big league team. And the other thing I wanted to do was to become a television writer, TV comedy writer. And I chose taking the writing path for the following reason. Being a top 40 disc jockey, I would bounce around the country. I would get an apartment, and three months later, I'd get fired. And all of the money that I made in radio over two years, basically, I lost in apartment deposits. So I thought, you know, if I do minor league baseball, uh, then I'm off traveling again. You know, and I'm in Macon, Georgia, or Bangor, Maine, or wherever, Altoona, I don't know. And if I am in Los Angeles, and I, let's say I get a job as a writer, and I get fired, I don't have to move. So that was the... <laughs> that was the tipping point was no matter what happened in LA, no matter how many times I got fired, I wouldn't lose my apartment deposit. So that's what I decided to do was to, to go to LA and try to be a writer. And at the time, a lot of writers who were working and very successful were in their forties, fifties and sixties. It's not like today where the industry is so youth-oriented that, you know, you got to break in in your 20s or your early 30s or your chances are very, very slim. Well, back then, when you look at, say, All in the Family or Maud or some of the great shows from the Norman Lear stable, those were all written by writers who were in their 50s. Those were all written by guys who had been in radio for years and years and years. So they were seasoned veterans. And hey, look at the results. Same with the Mary Tyler Moore Show. When you had Jim Brooks and Alan Burns and Ed Weinberger and Bob Ellison, Stan Daniels, David Lloyd, and you see the results on screen. MASH had Larry Gelbart, who was even then a successful playwright and a successful screenwriter. So you didn't have to be 20. And that was a period where if you reached a certain point in your career, if you reached a certain pinnacle, then you could always work. You might not work as much. You might not be offered staff jobs, but you could still make a living by writing episodes or by working one day a week as a consultant. So you always had the feeling back then when you got into the business that if you reached a certain level, there was stability and basically a buffer for ageism. Now, true, there were an awful lot of writers who crapped out, who flamed out. They were successful for six, seven, ten years, and then for whatever reason, uh, 
you know, their career ended. But that was the goal. That was the end game, was to get to the point where you could always work. And so when we broke in, we knew that those jobs at least were available. And David and I were very lucky. We moved up the ladder. We got on MASH due to circumstances where the people above us happened to leave. David and I were 26 years old and we found ourselves as the head writers of MASH. It's insane. It's just insane. And then producing Cheers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and we became very sought after writers. I don't know if we were A-list. Uh, I consider Larry Gelbart to be A-list. We were between a B and a B plus, which is still r- really good. And you could get development deals back in those days. And let me just take a moment to explain what a development deal was. And I say was because they really don't exist today. Very few writers have a development deal. Back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, networks could not own their own shows. So studios were in competition with each other to get their shows on the network. And the best way of hedging your bet was to have tied up some of the best writers in Hollywood. So they would make you a development deal. You were exclusive to a studio, say Paramount. You were exclusive to Paramount. They would set you up with an office and a writer's assistant, and you would come up with pilot ideas that you would pitch the various networks. And if one of the networks bought one of the pilots, you did the pilot, and if it got on the air, you made that series for Paramount. Well, a lot of these development deals didn't work out, but do the math, okay? Let's say you have a development deal at Warner Brothers, And you go to NBC and pitch a show called Friends. Well, Friends becomes this enormous cash cow, a huge bonanza. They make more money off of Friends at Warner Brothers than they do off the Batman franchise and the Superman franchise, etc. Okay, it's just an oil well that just keeps pumping. And so you figure... Even if you have eight development deals with different writers, over the course of five years, if one of them comes up with a friends, it's worth it all. So all of these studios were tying up the best writers. And so there were bidding wars for the writers. Now, networks own their own shows, and so... You know, they'll just hire who they want to do their shows. Uh, It's it's not like before. It's not like if you want Levine and Isaacs, well, then you have to deal with Paramount. No. You know, if you want Levine and Isaacs, you call Levine and Isaacs and say, "Eh, get your ass down here and pitch us something. It's a very different world. But I remember there was like one year where David and I were shopping for a development deal. And we met with our agent, Bob Broder, who was a terrific TV agent up in his office. And he had a whiteboard and he had listed all of the studios at the time that were making development deals. There was Paramount and Universal and Warner Brothers, MGM, MTM. Uh, it's off the top of my head. Lorimar, uh, Sony, 20th Century Fox, 
Gracie Films, which was Jim Brooks' company. Uh, Stephen Cannell had a production company. Aaron Spelling had a production company. Tribune Entertainment, on and on and on. There was about 12 or 13 of those. And then Bob just walked us through each one, talking about the advantages and disadvantages. Okay, this one, uh, the executives are really kind of hands-on, but they'll pay you more money. Your chances of getting a show on the air are less because they don't have a great uh, comedy track record. Over here, you might make less money, but you have a better chance of getting the show on the air. Here, the uh, top management is uh, very supportive. Uh, You know, he would just walk us through the entire list. And the thing I remember most about it was that all of these companies wanted us. <laughs> now, this was just a brief moment in time. All of these companies wanted us. And it was it was glorious. And now, like I said, these development deals do not exist anymore. Uh, but, I mean, at the time, Les Moonves, remember him? Les Moonves took us to lunch in his private dining room. And ABC came to us and we had lunch with the president of ABC who said, please, please bring your next project to ABC, which we did. And then they kept shining us on with the meeting. And so we took it to CBS and that became almost perfect. But it was very nice to be in demand. And then I became a director and was in demand for that too. I was able to direct like 60 episodes of television and I was able to cobble together schedules as a freelance director. I would do two weeks on Darman Gregg and then I would go and I would do a week on Frasier and then I would do uh, a week on Everybody Loves Raymond. Then I would come back and do another Dharma and then I would do Just Shoot Me and two weeks later I would go to New York and I would do Late Line for four episodes and that type of thing. Again, it was very nice to be wanted and I was very young at the time. Uh, We were offered movie rewrites and a studio would send over a script and if David and I read it and liked it, and said, okay, we'll do it, then we got the job. I mean, the way we got Mannequin was we had written a pilot for Mary Tyler Moore, and it was now June, and all of the CBS executives were gone on vacation for a month. So we figured, well, we have some time. And so we called our agent and said, you know, give the Charles brothers a call. We're around. We're happy to knock out a Cheers episode. And he called us back half hour later. Says, how'd you like to make five times the money? Like, well, yeah, okay. And he said, there's this movie mannequin and they need a fast rewrite. And uh, they sent us over the script and we read it. We met with them at like five o'clock that afternoon. And we only had two weeks and they said, okay, go. And the next day we're off writing. Uh, It was that easy to get a movie rewrite back then, okay? (laughs) Things change when you get into your 50s and you're no longer hot. Um, 2005, you wonder, okay, is this gradual that the decline happens? 2005, I am working on three series simultaneously, 
I'm working on Frasier, Becker, and it's all relative. And on all three shows, I'm writing episodes, I'm directing episodes, and I'm consulting. Three shows. That's 2005. 2006, nothing. All three shows had ended their runs at the end of that year. It's all relative. Uh, was canceled, but uh, the other two uh, ended their runs. And, and I went from three shows to nothing. And now I'm in my mid-50s, and the directing assignments aren't coming as often. And now David and I are basically going in and pitching pilots. The networks were receptive. They were happy to have us come in and pitch, but no longer were they pretty much just buying things automatically. Uh, Now it was uh, kind of a hard sell. And another tipping point, uh, we got a call from our agent and there was a very high-powered producer, Gavin Pallone, and he was putting together a package, a pilot starring Rita Rudner and John Lovitz. Would we want to do something? And we thought, well, they're both really funny, and we came up with an idea about the two of them being adult siblings, and we created a very funny situation. Uh, I remember we had a great title, uh, I Hate You More. And uh, they were all on board. We even wrote a scene for them. And then we went and we pitched all four networks. We pitched ABC, Fox, and NBC, like on a Tuesday. And then the next day, that Wednesday, at 4 o'clock, we were pitching CBS. So the three pitch meetings were fantastic with Fox and NBC and uh, ABC. Uh, just big laughs, terrific. Okay, <laughs> the next day, Wednesday, we show up at CBS like 15 minutes before the pitch and Gavin Pallone is there and we said, so what do you hear? All three networks passed. Like, What? Why? And sort of the horseshit excuse they gave was, well, it wasn't developed enough. Like, wasn't developed enough. We had stories, we had a scene, we had the cast, and they were laughing. So we knew that that was pretty much it. And now we were going into CBS, and CBS was not an easy place to pitch. They're lovely people, but they were not laughers. They're not great laughers. So pitches at CBS um, tended not to be enjoyable <laughs> endeavors, even though we sold a lot of things to, to CBS. So when that was over and we figured, okay, CBS is, is done, it's like David and I both came to the same conclusion independently and we're standing in the parking lot at CBS at Television City at Beverly and Fairfax and we both said, I'm done, that's it. Uh, If we come up with an idea for a pilot, we can write it on spec, but to go in and pitch 
uh, we, we're, we're done. Because, look, the reason that nobody bought it was not because it was not a good idea or that the people involved were not really talented. Everybody involved was really talented, but they didn't want to do a show about 50-year-old people written by 50-year-old writers. It's just that simple. So, so we go off and now we're writing a couple of things on spec and I'm involved in playwriting, etc. And we get a call about a year later from our agent saying there is a British writing team and they were a big success. Young guys are a big success in Great Britain. And one of their English shows got adapted for American TV. And as a result, these two guys were suddenly very hot. So they came to the United States and they made a development deal. And they pitched an idea. All four networks wanted to do this idea. There was a bidding war for these guys, and ABC won. ABC got the rights to do this show. But they wanted seasoned showrunners to do the show. So we got that call. I said to our agent, why? Why us? And he said, well, they, they really, they specifically asked for you. I said, are these also clients? At the time we were with ICM, I said, are these ICM clients? And he said, no. And I said, then they're never going to hire us because it's going to be an agency package deal. And if they're with CAA, at the end of the day, they're going to hire a CAA actor, excuse me, a CAA writer. No, 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 they called for you specifically. It's like, okay. So we drive down there and we, we meet with these two guys. And they're lovely guys, both of them. Great, just great. And they knew all of our stuff. They really were fans. I mean, they're quoting lines from episodes of ours. And they know which episodes of Cheers and MASH and Frasier that we wrote. They're asking us questions about them. And they really were fans. So, hey, that was, that was worth going over the hill for a meeting just just for that. So we said to them, um, what's the idea? And they said, we want to do something with adult siblings. And we said, okay, and that's all we have. And I'm thinking to myself, no, wait a minute. There's a bidding war. All four networks want your idea of adult siblings, but we go in a year or so before with adult siblings and an entire worked out series and they pass because it's not developed enough. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) It's not hard to read the handwriting on the wall. Ultimately, they said, we would love to be in business with you. This would just be so great. It would be a dream come true, really an honor, yada, yada, yada. We didn't get the job. No, they gave it to a CAA writer, which we knew would happen. And even then, we still kind of maintained a career. We wrote a spec pilot that FX bought, 
but ultimately couldn't find a companion piece for. And a number of years ago, USA came after us and wanted us to do a pilot for USA, which we did. And then USA decided, nah, we don't want to make any comedies. <laughs> so they didn't pick up any of the comedy pilots and they let the entire comedy development department go. Welcome to Hollywood. Then the, the piece de resistance was a couple of years ago, there was a Carol Burnett pilot. And I know the writer, creator of that show and... He put together a room of some really good people to come and help during the week of production. So I came in a couple of nights a week, and it was really fun, and it was great, and Carol Burnett was fantastic. And I got some jokes in, and Carol Burnett got big laughs with my jokes. And so that's like, wow, I I wrote a joke for Carol Burnett. But... Now there's that period when they're putting the pilot together and hoping to go to New York and hoping to sell it, et cetera, et cetera. And they're trying to put together like a potential staff in case the show gets picked up. And I get a call from this showrunner, the creator of the show. And he says to me, would you be interested in working on the show if it actually goes? And I said, yeah, I don't want to do full time. I said, but I'm happy to do a a night a week or direct some episodes for you or write some episodes for you. Sure, I would be happy to. And then he calls me back a couple of days later and says, um, this is kind of awkward. Uh, Did you have a writing sample? I said, what? And he goes, um, ABC would like a writing sample. And I'm thinking, wait, a few years ago, the president of ABC is begging us to bring our next project to them. I've written on ABC shows for many years. I've directed many ABC shows. ABC wants a writing sample. And so my answer to him was tell ABC to watch Cheers or go fuck themselves. And uh, he calls me back couple of days later and he goes well okay you've been approved like whoo i'm i'm just so relieved but hey that that is the world when you are a writer and you reach a particular age now i'm happy as a playwright and the irony is i think i'm a better writer now than i was when i was in high demand I mean, when you think about it, when I write a half-hour episode of television, like, say, Frasier, well, number one, I have my partner. Number two, I have the finest actors in America doing the material. It's only 22 minutes. We have a week to rehearse it. And during that time, there is a staff of eight or nine equally talented or more talented writers who are there to help 
smooth over anything, put in better jokes, et cetera, et cetera. So that by the time the audience comes, oh, and by the way, when the audience comes to see it, the audience is predisposed to love it because it's Frasier. They get a chance to see Frasier. And so they're very excited. So they're ready to laugh at anything. And you have a warm-up guy who tells them to laugh. Okay, so you have all of that going for you. Well, when I write a full-length play, it's 90 minutes to two hours, and it's just me. There are no other writers. I have to make all of the fixes myself. I'm the one that has to sit in rehearsal and figure out story fixes and changing attitudes, et cetera, et cetera. I have to do that all on my own. And I have to write jokes that are going to make an audience of total strangers laugh for 90 minutes. Boy, that is a very tall order. To be able to do that and and do it successfully and sit in a theater where People are laughing. It's so satisfying to me because it's basically saying, I can still do this, okay? Even though ABC wants a writing sample, I can still do this. You know, the fact that that I happen to be older doesn't necessarily mean that I've lost it. You know, it's not like you're a ball player and you reach the age of 35 and all of a sudden your bat speed goes down and all of the things that you were able to do that you just took for granted, you can't do it anymore. You just physically can't do it. I don't feel that way at all about writing. And so, like I said, this portion of my life has been extremely rewarding and I hope to keep doing it for a long, long time. And that's aging, at least one writer's aging story. Ironically, you know, I watch these pilots and I see they're, they're done by young writers and especially these multi-camera pilots. Clearly, they don't have the seasoning that we did. And I look at these pilots and I go, you guys are trying to reinvent the wheel And there's all these terrific older writers who are out there who know what they're doing, who could really help you, and our phones never ring. And that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman and John Wolfert, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine.